Hello and welcome to The Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. In this week's episode, Jay and I discuss Obamacare. Will the Supreme Court send it into a death spiral? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's address to a joint session of Congress and Jay's very special bathroom encounter with Netanyahu. The Justice Department, which found insufficient evidence to bring charges against Officer Darren Wilson in the shooting death of Michael Brown, but reported that the Ferguson Police Department is a walking disaster that's in big trouble unless it cleans up its act. And the super-secret email world of Hillary Clinton. Our lead story this week is the Supreme Court, which on Wednesday heard oral arguments in the case of King versus Burwell, uh, which deals with Obamacare. And it's a case that has the potential to send Obamacare into a death spiral. Death spiral. Yes, we have to talk can about we, death spiral. Like some like crazy sound effects on that would say death spiral. I think that would be very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it would mean that potentially millions of newly insured people under Obamacare would not have coverage so and and why not mike tell explain to the audience because this is sort of a uh, a technical um question and it's not really a, a constitutional question i think there's sort of constitutional concerns that get brought in but mm-hmm. at, at base it's about statutory interpretation and there's nothing more exciting of course than statutory interpretation Though at times it actually can be kind of important, and it does rely on just a few words in the uh, a four-word phrase in one section, which basically says that uh, subsidies can only go to people who buy insurance on marketplaces that are, and here's the phrase, established by the state. Now, what right. does that mean, Jay? Well, I mean, I am, you know where I'm coming from on this. Uh, as as uh, Brother Scalia uh, put it, I mean, uh, you know, the, the words mean what they say, uh, and established by the state means established by the state. Uh, if you're Congress, and we had plenty of smart people who were drafting this, um, including uh, Mr. Gruber, uh, who even said this is how he intended to have it drafted, uh, the I- idea is that... Uh, there's a lot of other ways to say it. You could say by the state or or the federal government, uh, or you can say uh, under the act, or you can say exchanges created pursuant to. I mean, there there are a million different ways to do this, uh, but that's not what they said. And and at some point, I think you've got to uh, take Congress at their word. Um, uh, you know, the if you want to, you can uh, take up. I mean, sort of the the other side has said, well, yeah, but. It doesn't really make sense if they said it this way. It doesn't work that well. Um, well, and I think I think you know you point out Jonathan Gruber, and of course on on the right he became a big deal because he uh, claimed at some point that this was in fact what they intended to not give subsidies to uh, people to states that didn't form their own exchanges, but. I really think that that's kind of a red herring. Jonathan Gruber was not a primary drafter of this. He's not a member of Congress. And so the idea that Jonathan Gruber's uh, off-the-cuff off statement once or twice can go toward legislative intent, oh, I fair, think. No, fair enough. Fair, fair enough. I would, I would agree with you there. And I'm, I'm not citing Gruber necessarily as, as uh, uh, evidence, so to speak, um, uh, but just sort of, I guess, for the – 
the, the context of uh, this is how con- Congress drafted. I'm not suggesting that the case ought to turn on anything, anything Gruber said or didn't say, because, uh, uh, again, I think it goes back to here's what the words say, and it's sort of beyond Gruber. But. Right, and I think uh, in, in the oral argument, actually, uh, at one point, uh, uh, one of the attorneys said, well, this that cannot be the statute that Congress intended, and Justice Scalia said just what you would have guessed. Oh, can I say it? I, go ahead, Justice go ahead. Scalia said, of course it could be. Uh, and then he followed it up saying, well, it may not be the statute they intended, but it's the statute they wrote. Right. And now I think that gets to a very important distinction between Justice Scalia and some of his colleagues. Now, some people would say, well, it means what it, exactly what it says. Other people would say, well, it means what the intent is. And I right. kind of know where you fall on that. You fall with Justice Scalia. Right. And, and I, I've got some good reasons for it. And I, I, I'd be curious as to, to your opinion on this, because if we do have a, a um, government with a separation of powers, uh, Congress uh, Congress needs to work harder. Uh, you know, you can't just simply depend on the court or sometimes the president to uh, have, have Congress go ahead, pass a statute and then say, yeah, these parts aren't so good. This doesn't make sense. But you know what? We mean well. Uh, the intent is that this will get that this is supposed to work really great. Uh, so the court will necessarily uh, impose that uh, intent, no matter what we write. I think I think that's a problem. I mean, otherwise you you just start getting down to the point of statutes, which uh, which are just uh, maybe well intentioned and can say all kinds of nonsense, um, and it's it's a legal mess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree to a certain extent, but I think in this case, the, the intent is fairly clear and not following that intent leads to uh, what I think is a, both an absurd and a disastrous result. And I don't think the way to encourage or incentivize Congress to write better legislation or at least more precise legislation is to uh, uh, issue a ruling that that would have just such disastrous consequences. There was, a, there was a report that came out by the Urban Institute that said that if the court ruled against the government, this would eliminate around $29 billion in tax credits, right. uh, almost 10, 10 million people or sorry, almost uh, uh, 8 million people would find themselves uninsured. Rates would go up for everyone else. So this is not the way to do that, I don't think. Well, you know, and I, but I, you know, I'll tell you, I my thing is, uh, once we've gotten to that argument, I think the government is conceding that it's lost on the um, uh, the broader statutory interpretation. Well, well um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree that. I would just say that's one additional argument to bring forward as to why that, uh, why that that interpretation that's being challenged uh, that shouldn't yeah. that shouldn't hold. So I mean, and now, and now here's something. There is other other things. Now I would say there's a really, you know, I and I, I'm troubled by making judicial decisions just based on because oh the result would be disastrous or could be disastrous, because quite honestly, in, in most any legal case you're involved in. Uh, to one side or the other, the result may may be disastrous. And even if it isn't, they're going to tell you that it is. Um, so, you know, the the court shouldn't look at, geez, this might be really bad. Uh, oh, I know. totally disagree. They, they absolutely. I'd rather, have, I'd rather have good law because the uh, because, again, let's go back to the idea is you've got uh, another branch of government that if you have disastrous results can fix it. And Alito picked up on that. 
uh, and said, uh, "Look, Congress uh, is going to have to do something." Yeah, I know. I think I think that was that was ridiculous. Scalia said something similar. He said, uh, you know, something to the extent of, "Do you actually think that Congress would just stand by and uh, sit there and just while all these disastrous consequences ensue?" And according to reporters who were there, people actually laughed. Well, they did. Because I listened was, to the audio. I listened to the audio. So it's a ridiculous statement. And even, I mean, nobody believes that Congress will do this. And so well, I, I Alito, Alito believes it. And he's living in a fantasy there be, then. There would be incredible pressure on Congress to do something. This Congress. Uh, and you know what? If they didn't, you know, then then the, the private marketplace would step in. I mean, it, it will – things sort themselves out eventually. We must destroy this health care system in order to save it. I mean, that, no, that's no, to me I'm is the – I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that, uh, look, uh, it's better to have a, a bad policy result that can be fixed legislatively than to have a bad legal result that sticks with you forever. Well, of course, bad legal results can be changed as well by future courts, so it's not yeah, like a not bad legal result. Not, is as, not as easily. You know, something else that someone uh, has, has been pointed out, and I think Alito alluded to this, is is a uh, sort of a common common ground where the court could essentially s- declare this to be uh, uh, the, the correct reading or incorrect reading, but sort of stay enforcement of that. Um, right. That sort of gets you sort of a compromise that it, it prevents the disastrous results uh, immediately and would say we would give Congress a certain amount of time to act uh, to do this. Um, again, that's that to me is wandering a little bit into judicial activism. I, yeah, I, but it would satisfy your concerns. I see what you're saying. I think it's taking too big of a risk. Although I, I will say it seems like no matter uh, no matter what that this is going to be a closely fought uh, or uh, a near thing, it's certainly not going to be, uh, I don't think, a a 7-2 or even a 6-3 decision. Uh, There was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Justice Kennedy had an interesting point that he he brought up in the arguments saying uh, that that basically had to do with uh, federalism and uh, federal coercion. Are, Are you familiar with that? Well, you know, it, it's funny. That's that's actually uh, the government's position. Brought they brought that up, um, and again, to me, that that signals a concession of uh, we're going to lose on the statutory construction question. Um, what what the government essentially said is, uh, listen, you know, there would be so much pressure to for states to create their own exchanges because they would lose all this federal money and uh, their insurance markets would be thrown into the death spiral. Uh, that you know this this is uh, improper federal coercion uh, uh, towards the states. And just but, to point out that the federal government, the Supreme Court has held in in other instances that that in fact can happen, and the federal government has done that basically by you know unfairly coercing the states to, to take part in the program. Right, right. Um, but the issue there is. In this case, what they're saying is um, their statutory construction ought to be uh, agreed with because otherwise it's coercive. Well, I mean, it's sort of a heads catch yeah. you win, uh, tells you lose. But argument. except I think, if I recall correctly, actually, it wasn't the government that brought up this argument. It was uh, Justice Kennedy. And in fact, uh, the attorney... Oh, yeah. And Kennedy said, I think of stuff that the government doesn't. Exactly. So yeah. the government's not conceding that. But Justice Kennedy points out that there may, in fact, be a constitutional issue here. But right, right. now, the court's looking at it 
as a statutory issue. And I think, isn't it right that uh, the court generally tries to decide things on those statutory issues if they can and avoid the bigger issues? I mean, that's sort of the, you know, general, you know, it's what was called the the Brandeis rules, uh, which aren't really rules in a legal sense. It's just sort of a a good set of uh, way to go that if you can avoid, uh, you know, you ought to, to decide issues on the narrowest possible footing uh, just because it sort of makes good judicial sense. Um, so, yeah, that's that's out there, um, but there's nothing that says that uh, the court can't uh, rule on a more expansive basis. So right. Now, of course, we won't know how the court's ruled until uh, probably late in June or early in July when, yep. when they issue their ruling, but just uh, what, what do you think is going to happen? What's your, what's your guess? I I would bet on a 5-4 but with some sort of a stay. 5-4 overturning, finding that, uh, uh, not overturning, but uh, declaring that the statute means what it says and uh, federal uh, exchanges can't uh, use subsidies. IRS can't, can't use subsidies. Um, uh, there was also, well, we'll talk about that Chevron defense at some other other point, maybe. But uh, that's that's where I think we're gonna we're gonna go, and I think there will be some sort of um, stay or uh, hold on it to prevent uh, the death spiral. Okay, I'm gonna disagree with you on that. I I, I will agree in that it's going to be five four, but I think that uh, it will actually be to uphold the government's view of what uh, established by the state means. And so Obamacare won't be sent into the death spiral. Uh, and, I, my guess who is... You, who do you think the guy... Where do you think uh, Justice um, uh, Alito ends up? Or Justice Roberts, I'm sorry. Well, that, that's, that's what I think is uh, going to happen. Either Justice Roberts or Justice Kennedy will be on... Uh, will, will go inside with the government. I think Justice Roberts is going to wait and see what Justice Kennedy does, and if Kennedy goes over to the government side, which I think he probably is going to do, Roberts will, as I think is his preference, will stay with the dissenters. But if he sees that Kennedy is not, uh, you know, is going to go against, and I think he will actually go with the the government on that, because I don't think Justice Roberts really is comfortable with uh, issuing a ruling that would be so monumental in its in its effect. And, and I'll tell you, Roberts, to to his credit, and you know when he, he ruled uh, the other way on um, uh, the NFIB case, the last Obamacare case, uh, seems very much willing to let let the uh, political process play out. Uh, and and coming from someone, again, I'd I'd like to see uh, the ACA gone and so forth and uh, death spirals and all that. Just just sound like a lot of fun. Um, but there's if you're if you are a real true judicial conservative and believe in uh, judicial restraint, uh, Justice Roberts' approach uh, has a lot to uh, to recommend itself, uh, and that is that you know look let's it's it's almost like a you know it's like a football game where they're just calling too many penalties. You know, sometimes it's just just let them play the game. Well, and if that's the case, uh, that's an interesting point. If that's the case, then wouldn't just let them play the game? Yeah, that would mean essentially that. Well, however the government wants to interpret this, we're going to give them deference in that. Correct, 
And then the the long game, of course, that that Roberts would be would be playing there would be be saying, the next president uh, would necessarily have the deference to simply adopt a different interpretation. So in this case, then the judicially the judicial activism w- decision would be the decision that conservatives would uh, approve of. Let me think that through. <laughs> okay. No, that- I would I would I would say. Uh, uh, in in some respects, yes. Yeah, because uh, let me explain my reasoning well, here. No, I'll take. Here's the thing. Well, because what we're talking about is, uh, if we take another step back uh, and we say that the Chevron defense, which is what the government raised, which is that we, as the government, have the uh, authority, to, the def- the uh, discretion to interpret how these statutes are going to be applied. Right. Uh, and now there's 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 lines on that. I mean, you can you can where the statute is ambiguous, you have that discretion. Where it's just just plain not, you don't. Um, but so yeah, I, I but I, I would say uh, yeah, there's 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 something there's something to your point. I would uh, perhaps concede, perhaps unwillingly, but uh, yeah. Well, it, it's it's I think there's a little did... bit of activism. Yeah. But I would say it might be it might be. Uh, Justifiable activism, right? So, in in this sense, just just to be clear, the activism is is in basically saying that well, these elected officials have decided that this is the per- correct interpretation of this phrase, and we, as the unelected court, though, are going to overturn that and insert our own preferred interpretation of that, and that's kind of textbook activism, essentially. And that was my point. Uh, on, on that. But anyway, uh, we, we won't know for a while yet, but I'm sure we'll be talking about that uh, again when the court issues its decision. Yep. Well, you know, the other, yeah, the other big story this week was uh, Netanyahu's address uh, to Congress. Right. Um, and I'll tell you, this was – first of all, I want to – just for our, so our listeners know, I once uh, was in the uh, urinal next to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu – uh, so that is is sort of my well, claim to fame. Okay, there there are all kinds of questions that are, are, are running through my mind now, and all of them, unfortunately, involve images I want to get out of my mind. Well, so. no, I'll tell you, it was a it was it was a he was giving a speech at uh, Ashland University, and I had I was getting there a little bit late, so I just ran to hit the restroom real quick. And as I'm there, uh, in comes Bibi Netanyahu, with like three really big uh, guys. Uh, who proceeded to stand right behind him and me, uh, and it's, it's sort of mm. you talk about sort of like performance anxiety, uh, you know, when you have like the right. facade standing right behind you, and you, you know, um, uh, but I digress. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Netanyahu's speech was uh, to those who were there uh, very well received. Uh, there were, I think, uh, about a total of fifty Democrats who didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were they were not showing up uh, based on sort of uh, the, the protocol uh, part of it that they were upset that he had been invited by the Speaker of the House rather than the President. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this, not so much the merits of the speech because I think it it, it says what it says, and uh, everybody knows where Netanyahu is coming from. Um, uh, and and on on the deal itself, I mean, I think there's. The difficulty is no one really knows exactly what's in the deal. But just on on the propriety of him coming and speaking and sure. the Democrats boycotting, I wanted to get your thoughts. I, I, I would have boycotted it, too, had I been uh, in, in Congress. And I think uh, it's, it's something that, uh, at least up until now, just doesn't happen. Uh, the idea that a, uh, a foreign leader 
would come to Congress to argue against the administration and be given a forum in a joint session of Congress is, I think, is is outrageous. Well, of course, we we had a, a British prime minister here uh, a couple months ago who was lobbying members of Congress uh, on issues. He didn't give a speech. Well, there's a big difference. Exactly. I mean, uh, giving a speech and also that this whole idea of going it, going it, around the president. Giving a, wouldn't giving a, a public speech be much less, um, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say intrusive. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, a much less of uh, insidious uh, than a, a prime minister coming and, and lobbying members behind the scenes. No, not at all. I think I think a joint session of being being allowed to address a joint session of Congress gives you a certain legitimacy and, and implied respect that uh, behind-the-scenes lobbying uh, doesn't. So I think it was just way, way wrong. It, it sends a horrible message. It sets an awful precedent, uh, and I just think it was a, a really, really bad idea. But then again, I think, I think Netanyahu, I mean, we essentially allowed this guy an opportunity to grandstand before his elections, which are coming up, to show that he's tougher, tougher than anyone on Iran. And I just think it was just disgraceful, really. A horrible idea, and I, I think on the substance of it, Netanyahu was just absolutely wrong. He's just wrong every single way. I just think he's a, taking entirely the wrong approach, and I think it was an awful thing. Well, wouldn't you agree, though? Let's let's say, uh, let's attribute, let's set aside, uh, I, and I understand there could be certainly political motives why he wanted to do that. Uh, legitimacy, I'm not sure I follow you there, because look, he's the Prime Minister of Israel, whether, whether we let him speak in front of Congress or not. Um, you don't see a distinction between speaking in front of Congress and talking to someone on Fox News. Oh, no, I, I certainly think it's it's a bigger deal, uh, perhaps to us, uh, to Americans. Uh, I don't know that it makes a big difference to uh, Israelis. Would we care if Obama addressed the uh, Israeli Knesset? I think it would get more coverage would than he, if he just he be... talked to whatever, you know, Tel Aviv uh, newspaper or something right. like that. Yeah. I think so. But do you think that changes his standing uh, in America? I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, it's, it's just okay, I see what you're saying there. Okay. But, you know, to the, the other point, let's let's assume um, the best of, of Netanyahu, uh, which I do. <laughs> okay, that's going to be a lot more of a stretch for me, but and, all right. Uh, you know, look, th- this could be an existential um, issue for, for Israel. And uh, the deal, as I've heard it described, and again, we don't know all the details, but it was essentially Iran, Iran would have the ability to enrich uranium at a rate in which it would have enough for a bomb in 10 years. Or if, if for some reason uh, the deal falls through and they, they disobey it, they would be able to get a bomb within one year. Now, what inherent in all this is no one seems to believe that Iran wants uh, to enrich all this uranium for peaceful purposes. Uh, they want a bomb. And the reason they want a bomb, and they've said this publicly uh, numerous times, is to blow the hell out of Israel. Well, okay, um, so, so I mean, let, I, let's I'm, assume I'm that I, I, I agree with you on all of that, okay? But given that, then the idea of turning down a deal that might make it, you know, a decade before they get a bomb so that they could get a bomb in a year, that makes no sense to me. I mean, essentially, Netanyahu, it seems to me to be saying that, well, no deal is better than this deal. But if no deal means they can get a bomb in a year 
and a deal means it might take 10 years. I think he's just dead wrong on that. Well, I think I think the deal uh, Netanyahu would uh, would endorse would be uh, something that would have much greater uh, opportunity to 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 monitor so that we'd know where they are. Yeah, I'd endorse that, too. Could take, and could take action, enforcement action. Uh, to if they if they if we did detect cheating, uh, could move quickly, um, and that would I mean that would have to be uh, military. And you know, uh, I, but, I, but that's that's sort of where we are. I think that would be a great deal. I would love to see a tougher deal, but you know, in the world we live in, you have to take the deals that you can get. And I think holding <laughs> out for a deal that you're not going to get. I mean, Netanyahu seems to, in one hand, hold the belief that... Uh, why, why, the, wouldn't, why wouldn't we get it? Iran, with all the sanctions, with the falling price of oil, uh, they're crumbling. They're almost, I mean, we got them where we want them. Oh, like North Korea. Why we well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that works really well. I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I don't think that that's, that's, that's going to work, and I think it's taking a huge gamble. You're basically saying, well, we think these sanctions are going to work, and if they don't, well, they'll have a bomb in a year. Oh, well, no, let's we roll the, the dice. sanctions have been working. Why give them up right now? I mean, just like they're working in North Korea or, you know, in Cuba. I mean, I, I just don't see I don't see that that I don't see that given our track record with the effectiveness of these kind of sanctions that we should take that kind of risk with getting uh, Iran nuclear weapons. I think that's a horrible, horrible risk to take. Well, again, I think we'll just have to agree to disagree on this. I think uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this this may be in, in you know, five, 10 years from now, we, we could look back at this and it would be sort of a turning point in history. If Iran does get the bomb, if they do use it, uh, we would be living in a completely different world oh, than yeah. uh, anything we've ever known. And uh, uh, Netanyahu will look will look like a very prescient uh, leader, and we will say, why didn't we listen to him? Or, not, or in, in, not, or in, you know, despite my close association with, yes, Canada, there's not much either of us can do about right. it. I suppose, but I think, or in 18 months, yeah. uh, Iran has a bomb, and Yahoo looks like a fool. But uh, in, in either case, we can both agree that we don't really want Iran to have nuclear weapons. Right. We want to delay it as long as possible. Oh, there you lost me. There you lost me. You don't want to delay it as long as possible. No, I don't want it to ever happen. Well, I don't know that that's I a realistic to, option, Jay. I don't Jay. want to the idea of, of Iran ever having a bomb. Okay, I, I, I think, I think that, that's... that ought to be our policy. Is can Iran have a bomb? No. Yeah, I think it's a policy, but I don't think it's, it's a like, realistic. It's like, all right, if your if your kids, you know, I, I've got three kids, and if some of one of them wants to say, "Hey, Dad, I want to do heroin," and I say, "No, nah, not yet." You're just well, twelve. I think it's different. I think I it's more. No, I think if you I want to do heroin not... when you're thirty. It's cool. Bad, bad, good, funny analogy, but bad analogy. I think the analogy is more like saying to your 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 kid saying to you at say the age of fourteen, I, I want to have you know I want to have sex with boys, and you saying no, you can never have sex with boys. Now that's probably going to happen at some point. It's inevitable, right. more right. than likely, and so you can delay it. I'm sure you wanna, but you can't stop it. I think that's really the case. Iran wants to have sex with boys. Well, I, yeah, I guess I guess they they probably do, but uh, uh, again, I would I would say that the, the consequences of a nuclear run are are such that you put it more in the heroin category. Okay. Than um, an outright prohibition, uh, uh, just say no. So. I, I yeah, of course we could talk about the effectiveness of just say no, but in any case, well, you know. 
Neither, neither of us, neither of us uh, were drugged out, so you know. Not, not, not particularly. Anyway, okay, moving, moving on. Uh, going back to a domestic story, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Ferguson uh, and the Justice Department. Uh, this week, the Justice Department cleared Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson, uh, and they based this on a fairly careful review of the evidence. And it, it turns out, actually, that Michael Brown, who, of course, is the uh, the person that he shot and killed, didn't actually have his hands up, as a number of what it turns out to be unreliable witnesses claimed. But at the same time, they released a report which essentially argued that the Ferguson Police Department is uh, a big kind of steaming pile of racist dung, I guess you sure. could say, and that they're going to be sued by the federal government if they don't change their ways, which means essentially entering into a consent, a consent agreement. Right, yeah. which, uh, which my city, Cincinnati, did with the federal government in uh, 2002 for similar kind of racial issues and so forth. So what do you think about this, Jay? Well, first of all, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's look, it's a compromise. Uh, I'm surprised and to some uh, degree heartened that uh, they didn't. The Justice Department didn't take a, a political uh, uh, hammer and tongs to uh, uh, the officer uh, just to uh, to score political points. I think that would have been a travesty in light of, of what happened. Uh, so I give I give uh, props to Eric Holder, and you're not going to hear me say that often. Wow. But maybe not. Maybe it's not Eric Holder. Maybe it's all the other investigators uh, in the process uh, for saying, "Look, this 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 did not happen as it had been uh, portrayed uh, by by certain uh, uh, people out there." Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, you know, essentially, that the grand jury was right uh, not to to move forward with charges. So I think that's that's wonderful, and I, and I I am sure that uh, the apology will be forthcoming from uh, Reverend Sharpton uh, and the various uh, protesters, well, um, for- you know who who, have, who did all this stuff and all the all the the the, the hands up don't shoot nonsense. Uh, all the members of Congress who stood up and you know put their hands up and hands up don't shoot. I imagine they will be also uh, uh, apologizing soon. Okay, fine, and, and I think I, I see your point there. But I think that the counterpoint to this is that, well, even though in this specific case it's symbolic of what the Justice Department found in Ferguson's police department, that they said it, they said that the police department engaged in so many constitutional violations that essentially the only way to correct it was to abandon their entire approach to policing, retrain their employees, and establish new oversight. So, okay, in this specific case, absolutely, but the symbolic meaning is still very much, I think, relevant here, because this it is a broken fake, police it was department. fake, but accurate. Well, I mean, sure, you can look at it that way, but I think the larger point is that this is... If you, uh, mean, if you mean murdered someone in cold blood, actually murdered someone who had their hands up in cold blood, no. But, but you know, metaphorically murdered someone in cold okay, blood. Okay, I, I see your point. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I think, you know, it, and this perhaps uh, brings us to a i don't know a, a larger problem in that the justice department typically goes after large police forces you know in big cities or bigger cities like cincinnati say for example or cleveland or something like that so I'm, but i almost wonder if there are maybe more of these problems in smaller police departments where there probably isn't going to be the media attention and the oversight and the resources and so forth you know so this is not necessarily an uncommon thing it might even be more common than uh, we appreciate you know something that the justice department uh cited and and this is something that i actually again i'm a props to eric holder uh can get on board with 
was the the over policing the use of uh, police and uh, aggressive ticketing practices to generate revenue uh, I would think that's something that all conservatives can get get excited about uh, I certainly am because I, I, I think that's a it's an atrocity um, uh, Columbus I'm looking at you uh, but but there are so many uh, CDs where uh, my god if, if a parking meter uh, 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 you know, times out. There are multiple alarms that go off in the station house, and you have a, a SWAT team there to ticket you. Uh, you know, similarly, Columbus had issues with uh, pulling people into jail for jaywalking and so forth. Uh, but also, it, there's all sorts of of, of crime. I my, my car stolen. I, you know, so much, so much. It's not about me, but um, so much of, of this sort of things happen where you have a police force that. Right. Uh, you know, because solving the actual crimes, well, you don't make money doing that. Uh, that's a that's a revenue loser. Um, uh, but uh, ticketing uh, people for for small offenses uh, is is not. Um, well, I can I can agree with you on that, and our agreement has been uh, in uh, not not abundant this episode. So I will say that I absolutely agree with you on that. So yeah, and I think you know, look, uh, conservatives have a, a chance here to get on board and say, look. Uh, this is, and it's, it make it not so much a, a black-white issue, but it's more just a, a general bad policing issue. Um, and, and there's definitely a lot of bad policing that goes on in Ferguson. Right, and, and, and to some extent, it, it happens everywhere. Uh, uh, and, and I think you're, you're probably right in that maybe small towns uh, avoid the, uh, the media spotlight. Uh, but Ferguson uh, won't because of the, uh, the circumstances that thrust it into the spotlight. Yeah, definitely. But, so somebody else, like who, who uh, again is back in the spotlight, and this is surprising to me, because uh, again, this has been such a big week. The Hillary Clinton uh, email on the private server, uh, right? ClintonEmail dot com. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what what strikes me first of all isn't that Hillary uh, completely ignored the rules regarding uh, having a public email system and ran everything privately. Um, that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, uh, it doesn't surprise me that she set up her own server or that she then said, well, I want everyone to see my emails uh, or told the State Department who doesn't have her emails. <laughs> and <laughs> and everyone to see them. It, it shouldn't surprise. I don't think it should surprise anyone, even more than most politicians. Hillary Clinton exists in kind of a bubble of loyalists, uh, well known for being very secretive, almost paranoid some would say, somewhat vengeful, a lot of people would say. Uh, yes. So this seems to me to be very characteristic. Now, I think the Clinton supporters would say, well, all of this is because of how unfairly she and her husband have been treated for decades now by the press, although the other side is that they have brought a lot of this on themselves. Right. Now, I would, I'm going to take, you know, being treated unfairly by the press, I think that's that's sort of what surprised me is – the press is really moving with this story, uh, and I would have would have expected that it would have been sort of buried, uh, given all the other things that happened this week. Uh, well, you know, I, I think there's a good reason for that. I think the reason is the press hates hates it when politicians of left or right keep stuff from them. So this is the kind of issue that they love access to information type of stuff, but it's not a real story. At least it's not an important story. The The general election is, uh, is you know, a long ways off. Real people don't care about this. It's going to go away. In fact, Republicans probably would have wished that this story hadn't broken for another 18 months. Then it could have really helped them, possibly. But even then, I don't think so much. It's a flash in the pan. 
doesn't mean that much. It just kind of, I think for me, confirms what I already believe about Hillary Clinton, who honestly, I can see myself kind of holding my nose and voting for her against Jeb Bush, I'm oh guessing. I don't oh know. Goodness. I'm not I'm not crazy about the idea. I I someone someone who would systematically and intentionally violate the law regarding uh access to information to run essentially a secret of government. Uh wow. I'm not crazy about her. Like I I've always gotten the sense from Hillary about Hillary Clinton that she loves the people. But she doesn't really care a whole lot for actual people, you know. Right. She um, loves the people, but not individuals. Yeah, you know. So I, she, personally, I think she just rubs me the wrong way. But in terms of policy, I might have to. I, I yeah, I don't know. It's going to be oh, tough boy. for me if she's the. No, I'm, I'm really hoping somebody else is the Democratic nominee, but I don't see that happening. Well, you know, so. I've heard I've heard a couple of theories on on the press uh, on this, and one is that. Um, my wife brought this up, that the press are going after Hillary because they would really rather see Elizabeth Warren as the nominee. That's not going to uh, happen. I don't, yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think that would that is going to happen. Uh, there may be some press bias to the extent that Elizabeth Warren would present some novelty, and I think that's something that the press always wants oh, yeah. uh, as opposed to covering Hillary again. But I have to think there's there's got to be some some battle fatigue that is setting in uh, on the press corps and and uh, the the pundit corps in defending the Clintons, um, and and they don't want to relive uh, you know the 1990s as much as yeah. the 1990s were really my my glory days. That was like the decade of me. Um, and if you consider since Hillary became Hillary, the national figure we've had. Whitewater, the Vince Foster records, the White House Travel Office, the public records regarding Hillary Care, uh, funding from Johnny Wong, the, vice, the vast right-wing conspiracy, the missing Rose Law Firm billing records, the Mark Rich pardon, uh, taking, uh, taking everything that wasn't nailed down from the White House. Um, that's just sort of a, a, a quick list. Oh, your Clinton derangement syndrome is kind of popping up here now, I think. Well, it's not derangement syndrome because, uh, look, these were all, all real things. Then if you go into the, the Clinton 2.0, um, you get to the, uh, well, we were broke when we left the, the White House, which is, I suppose, why they had to take all the furniture. Uh, but the, the things that aren't, aren't necessarily criminal but just sort of ridiculous, uh, the reset button, uh, which actually said uh, uh, fully powered, uh, we handed the Russians who who took it at face value and and uh, you know proceeded to uh, to to your invade Ukraine, uh, landing under sniper fire in Bosnia, uh, and Benghazi, uh, Mrs. Weiner, um, remember Clinton's aide uh, who then worked for the State but, Department. But, but see the these, State I mean, I know you can go on and on, but I mean these are just I think a series of little picayune sort of things that the right-wing media blew up into little i mean it's just ridiculous it's just it's just another example of how the right-wing fox news wall street journal weekly standard media just has gone after anything to demonize these people well i think i think i've made my point uh without even talking about uh lobbying and contributions to the uh, clinton foundation um which will be another story, but uh, that will be a story for another day. But anyway, I am uh, I, I, I'm saying hats off to the press for actually covering this, and uh, I disagree. I think it's going to be a bigger story than you think. All right, so. well, I think uh, in the end you're going to be uh, uh, 
uh, an unhappy camper uh, from 26 to well, from 2017, January 2017 until uh, uh, January of 2021, when Hillary Clinton ends up being the next the next president. Not a result that I necessarily want, but I think that's what's going to happen. Are you putting down a marker at th- this early? I am. I am. You know what? I'm going right. to be bold. All I right. think yes, Hillary Clinton. Uh, much to my slight dismay, will be the next president of the United States. Well, one of these days we will have a discussion, and we'll have plenty of time to do that between now and then about uh, why she will not. But uh, that probably does it for our show today. But yeah, we are we are out of time. So uh, I uh, yeah, uh, we didn't get to any of our oddly enough kind of stories, which is really too bad because there are all sorts of interesting things. But uh, sometimes you know sacrifices have to be made, I guess. Yes. So. All right, well, then. I, you know, I would point out one other thing, and yeah. this is this is something that goes to the Supreme Court stuff. Uh, I'm gonna we'll post a link to the actual audio from the uh, oral argument, which is fantastic, and and I mean this in all sincerity. Uh, we do live in in some ways an absolute golden age of uh, information and being able to get uh, uh, sort of transparency as far as documents and oral arguments and. Uh, if you think it's boring, you don't like the Supreme Court. It, it is. It's, it's fun to listen to, and you get an idea for the personalities of the people involved, uh, and it gives you sort of a a real a good view of uh, government functioning at a high level and and uh, good attorneys and good judges all on top of their game. And uh, I would recommend it to everyone. Absolutely, and we'll we'll definitely get that up there on the show notes. Okay, well that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, manifestos, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. We'll be back next Sunday with another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.